WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Science communication can be so many things. For example, it can be speaking about science like how we do on The Sci-Files. You can read about science like an article or a journal. You can see science through videos like television or through experiments. Some of you may know that Danny and I are scientists. Danny's a nuclear physicist and I'm a biomedical engineer. We know science communication is really important, especially when it comes to expressing our research to the general public. Through the Sci-Files, we interview people from different fields and different colleges because we believe that all research is important to discuss. We even started MSU SciComm, which is a science communication organization here at MSU focused on different aspects of science communication, such as science policy, writing, speaking, art, and outreach. Science communication can be practiced by anyone. And today we're here to talk to Leanne Tiffany about how different people practice science communication. Leanne, can you please tell us about your research? Thanks for having me, Chelsea and Danny. Like you said, my name is Leanne. I'm a rising second year PhD student in the College of Communication Arts and Sciences. And my research area is broadly science communication, specifically focused on miscommunication of science through news media channels. I look at how journalists, scientists, and public relations practitioners all play a role in this miscommunication. Thanks for joining us today, Leanne. Last year, we had somebody else from ComArtSci that talked to us about the spread of misinformation through entertainment media. What is the difference between the spread of misinformation through that avenue versus through journalism? The primary difference between the two is the goal or purpose behind the content. So for entertainment, the goal is to entertain an audience. This can be scientifically factual if you think of a documentary, but overall, it's just about that entertaining an audience aspect. So if you think Big Bang Theory, that is a show that really promotes science, but the scientific facts within it are not always exactly accurate. Now, if you think of news media, the primary goal in an ideal world is to transmit information A reporter transmits facts to an audience, which is the general public. Granted, not all news media is like that. If you think of certain channels today being far more entertainment now than transmitting of facts in an I'm biased way. But really, if you break it down to definitions, entertainment is to entertain an audience, whereas news media is to transmit facts. And that's where you get the big difference between the two with science communication. That's a good point. For example, whenever people are watching television, the show might just put a joke in there about science that cannot be exactly correct. But if someone is reporting science, for example, a newspaper article, they need to be very accurate so that they don't spread the wrong information. You had mentioned that you were investigating how different groups of people practice science communication. Did you look at them separately or as a whole? For example, did you look at how they interact together or did you look at how they work as a separate entities? So no one has actually studied the intersection between scientists, journalists, and public relations practitioners, at least from my investigations into existing research. That's actually what got me fascinated and interested in going into this field. Brief background, I was a wildlife scientist and then a 
science journalist and then a public relations practitioner for wildlife nonprofits. So I've worked in all three of these fields and I've interacted closely with people in all these different roles. And really there is a strong connection between these three different groups. If you think about it, a scientist oftentimes will work with a public relations practitioner to get their research out to the public, especially journalists. These public relations practitioners will act as the go-between between between scientists and journalists with interviews and whatnot. And journalists will often turn to public relations practitioners to get in contact with scientists or find out about the latest scientific findings at a research institution. And then the journalists will promote that information through the news media. So there really is a strong collaboration between all three of these groups, but existing research is really siloed. So you have journalism in one corner and public relations in another, and they do their own research within science communication and looking at interactions between themselves and scientists. But there really isn't any overlap and they're between both of these fields and all three interacting together. And so that's what I want to look at. And that's what I'm currently researching is how do all three of these groups interact and what role does that play in science so often being miscommunicated to the public? I never really thought about how you can consider that interconnection between PR practitioners, journalists and scientists all as one interconnected web where one usually will take from the other or vice versa. It could go back and forth, really, because sometimes you have these situations where scientists will read an article that a journalist pumped out about maybe a subject area that they're interested in. And maybe that could be a motivation, for example, to pursue a new type of research project that aligns with their interests. What I often think about is what is the disconnect, however, between when a journalist or PR practitioner are taking information from a scientist and how much does it align with what the scientist is actually saying? Questions like this are why I left the professional sector to get my PhD so I could research these topics. So stereotypically, you think of a lack of understanding. So a scientist not explaining their findings properly or in a way that can be easily understood, or a journalist public relations practitioner just not understanding the science. But there are a lot more reasons. And one of the big ones is what is the goal behind someone's job? What are they trying to do? So for a public relations practitioner, it could be that they're trying to transmit the scientific findings accurately, but they also could be responsible for getting a lot of news coverage to bring in more donors to the research institution, to interest alumni or interest students in coming to the school. So they'll embellish a few things. They'll make it sound a lot more groundbreaking and life-changing than it actually is. Whereas a journalist... Perhaps their job is based on how many clicks they get on a story. Maybe that's how their salary is decided, how many people click on the story that they're promoting. They're also trying to make it super interesting. So someone scrolling through a feed will see that headline and be, wow, that's something I want to read. So really, there are a lot of different elements that can lead to scientific findings being warped and misconstrued going down the pipeline 
Sometimes it is intentional just to gain interest. It's not. A lot of times there is a genuine interest in communicating the science well, but also communicating it in an interesting way leads to a challenge and leads to the scientific findings in the end being presented in an interesting way, but not necessarily the most accurate. And that's where that disconnect often occurs. I agree. Something that really upsets me is whenever I see a news article that will say something about a scientific topic, and I'm like, wow, this looks really cool. So I read the article or the scientific journal or paper that people publish the results about, and I'm just like, that article did not really capture the science behind it. They focus on something that'll be like a clickbait kind of headline, but they don't actually usually go into the details of the science and why it's important, which is really why we do the sci-files. You had mentioned the relationship between scientists and journalists and scientists with public relation practitioners. However, whenever this is all happening, the three groups need to be in communication with each other. Whenever the interview occurs, usually the journalist is recording the scientist and then the journalists go to the PR practitioners or are the PR practitioners in contact with the scientists as well? It really is a case-by-case basis that scientist to PR professional to journalist train is just one example. Sometimes the scientist is out of the area, so then the PR person will work directly with the journalist. Sometimes the journalist will get in contact directly with the scientist and they will interact completely and the PR person will not be involved. Sometimes organizations won't have PR professionals because of resources, so that's not even an option. Overall, it really is a case-by-case basis. When people, including myself, think about journalism, the first picture that comes to mind is, is people working like in a newspaper agency, putting together stories and then printing them out for other people to read. But it's often forgotten that you could actually do journalism through other forms of media, whether it's through television or through radio, like the way The Sci-Files does. How do you study how these three groups interact with each other in the different forms of media? Do you see a difference in how they report the science that's being done? Name a type of media, and I've worked with it. And that's key, because we live in a multimedia news world today, and every different media type requires a different approach. So if you think of the New York Times, reading a print story in a hard copy paper version is going to be very different than trying to scroll through that much text on your phone. That would be unwieldy. So the New York Times often will add graphics, will add interactive elements, will add audio and video to make a long-form story that much more interactive and multimedia. That way it can keep an audience's attention, especially when scrolling through something on your phone when we're used to getting our information immediately right now and super quick. The key is to keep someone's attention. So one example, when I was at the PBS NewsHour, I was doing research on how do you tell a science story through Insta stories and Snapchat and social media while existing within a very old-fashioned broadcast format. So through that research, we found just how different we had to promote the information. It was a lot more conversational. It was involving Twitter chats. It was involving short, catchy, grab-me text to pull someone into a story to keep them interested and engaged rather than the traditional science segments that the PBS NewsHour does where somebody knows what they're getting into when they're watching the NewsHour. They're ready to watch a 16-minute broadcast segment going into every single 
legal element of the scientific finding. So it's really figuring out what the media type is, who is watching it, how long they're going to be paying attention to it, and using that kind of knowledge and researching it in that way so that you are getting findings that match the media type that someone is finding out their scientific information on. I know what you're saying, Leanne. The Sci-Files is on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And for each of those platforms, we advertise it a little bit differently because some people may pay attention to a post longer on one platform than the other. And graphics are really important because sometimes people don't want to read an entire long post about something. They just want to see it and then go on. However, I really do feel like graphics can also be dangerous as well. For example, recently a video came my way. It was saying that the coronavirus is not a virus and that 5G radiation caused it to be a bacteria to kill people, which is not correct for anyone who's listening. And there are a lot of articles that debunk that misinformation. Whenever people see this beautiful video or this really nice graphic that captures their attention, they want to believe that it's true. Does your research involve miscommunication of science? Yeah, definitely. My specific area is miscommunication of science. So that is people who have the best of intentions, really want to do the right thing in communicating science to the public. They just unintentionally make errors. That's different than misinformation, which is something we've heard greatly involved in politics and campaigns to misinform the public. This is more in misinformation is where the person is intentionally spreading false information in order to convince someone to be against a certain position or to view something in a specific light. I could understand how easy it would be to fall into the trap of miscommunicating science from the journalist or PR perspective. And then that made me think about how biases can also play into a role when it comes to communicating the science that's being done. How does that bias affect when a journalist or PR practitioner is reporting on the science? And how can unconscious bias affect how a journalist or PR practitioner reports the science that they're doing? That's an excellent question. Bias goes well beyond science communication. There's an entire discipline all dedicated to bias within the greater field of communication, looking at how biases can change how we perceive information, how ready we are to accept something as fact. You could go on for an entire another Sci-Files segment. Within science communication, you can look at how biases can influence how a public relations practitioner develops their press release, how a journalist decides to report on scientific findings, or even how a scientist feels about talking with public relations staff or journalists and how they feel about those professions. But it's more than just bias. Trying to be unbiased can also have a really detrimental effect. Take climate change, for example. If you have a journalist taking one scientist who supports climate change and another who doesn't and reports on them equally, that's giving a lot of credibility to the scientist that says that climate change isn't real, which scientific consensus across the board says that climate change is real. So in that instance, trying to be neutral or unbiased has a negative effect and actually leads to miscommunication of science to a degree. So really, bias is a double-edged sword. 
Unfortunately, unconscious bias is something that everyone deals with. However, with participating in trainings or reading and trying to inform yourself in ways to break those unconscious biases, we can all grow and move forward. Speaking of trainings, something we do at MSU SciComm is that we try to teach our participants different ways that they could practice science communication, and we give them a space where they can feel comfortable and be themselves while doing it. Do you happen to also focus on the different trainings that these people might do to learn about how to be a better science communicator? Yes, I do. And there are some incredible training programs already out there, like what MSU SciComm does, Compass, the Alda Center, just to name a few. But the main thing that I focus on is the scientific evidence behind these training programs. A lot of these programs don't have actual scientific evidence proving that what they're teaching is actually effective and leading to change. Now, these programs are incredible and teach a lot of fantastic skills. I've done training programs myself, but that evidence really isn't there. So my research focuses on what is the evidence that proves that these training programs are actually effective and helping to develop ways to collect that kind of data so we can go back and make these programs better, make them more effective, and ideally help prevent miscommunication of science by having scientifically backed training programs. Since you've began your research in science communication training, where do some of these programs lack the support in when it comes to actually providing high-quality science communication practice to the scientists? I'd have to say the biggest challenge is in measuring how effective these training programs are. Now, this is at no fault of these different programs. They teach incredible skills and they're putting forth extensive effort to be effective in teaching science communication tactics and strategies. But so far, there really isn't any way to track how effective these methods are. You can do surveys, you can ask follow-up questions, but there's no real tangible way to say a scientist took this training program, learned these skills, and better their communications with journalists by 50%. There's no A to B direct connection in these training program measurements. That's something that I am trying and hope to do further in my research is find better ways to measure the effectiveness of these science communication programs. Everyone learns differently. Some people learn visually, some people learn audibly, some people learn tactically. However, technology is changing nowadays. We have things like virtual reality systems. Leanne, where do you think science communication is going for the future now? Really, science communication research has been moving toward the future for a while now, specifically in how we approach science communication. So originally, the deficit model was all the rage. And this was essentially that if you throw a bunch of information at someone, they will understand science better. They will love science and think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, to be really cliche. That has universally been debunked at this point. So science communication for a little while now and for all intents and purposes will continue to move in that direction towards a public engagement model. 
that's the idea of having a dialogue with the public or with people about science and scientific findings. It's found in museum exhibits, in podcasts like this one, in Twitter chats, you name it. It's this idea of having a dialogue with people about scientific information, and that will lead to people better understanding science and actually accepting and growing to love science more. It sounds like we have a lot to look forward to when it comes to the future of science communication. Early in the interview, you had touched upon some of the experiences that you had gone through in science communication, but I wanted to know, and if you could tell our listeners, what has been the most impactful science communication experience that you have gone through and why? You're going to make me pick just one? That is not fair. I'd have to say, if forced to pick just one, my time in public relations at a wildlife nonprofit in Washington, D.C., while there I did science communication training programs like the ones we've already talked about today. I did those for scientists across the country, teaching them how to testify before the United States Congress, speak with journalists, speak with the public who might be vehemently against their findings of their scientific research. And in doing so, it was inspiring to see these incredible, brilliant scientists go from a place of distrust of journalists and science communication to a place of confidence and using their own voice to sharing their scientific research, sharing the findings they've made, even advocating for science-backed policy. The best part of science communication is actually being invisible. Really, the job of a science communication researcher or science communicator is to step into the shadows and just provide the tools for journalists and public relations practitioners and scientists to be able to use their voices, their expertise to communicate science to the public in an effective and accurate way. The best part of my job is getting to see those moments where the research and the findings that we found be used in a practical way that actually makes a difference in how our science is communicated. That's what matters the most to me, and that's why I do what I do. I totally get that, Leanne. It's a really fulfilling feeling to be able to communicate science while informing them about something new. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully by the end of this interview, people understand the importance of science communication. And even if they're not interested in doing science themselves, are still inspired by hearing the experiences that Leanne has had. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leanne, and good luck with the rest of your research. Thank you both. It's been an honor and pleasure. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan. Program Director Amber Konutsky, Station Manager Joe Dandron, and General Manager Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89 FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for the Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on the Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on the Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.